Welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. And this is episode one for January 2023. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And a warm welcome and a happy new year from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, we'll have a selection of your letters to the editor. And local estate agents give us their Dorset housing forecast for 2023. Simon Hoare MP contrasts the current period of industrial strife with the original winter of discontent. Mike Chapman of the Lib Dems gives his highs and lows of 2022. Ken Huggins looks for the positives amid the otherwise gloomy economic and environmental outlook. And Pat Osborne of Labour gives his views on the ongoing strikes. But first, here's Laura Hitchcock. Is it too late to wish you a happy new year? When when does it stop being appropriate and become just a bit awkward? (laughs) Probably about now. But it's our first issue of the year and I've not seen you yet, so happy new year. We had a wonderfully packed house over Christmas and New Year. It's astonishing how full it feels when you have four children and they all turn into adult-sized human beings when you're not looking. And then one gets himself a wife. Some of them bring a friend or two over and before you know it, you're making toasted sandwiches for 12 while vociferously defending your position that cheese has no place in a hot tuna sandwich. And yes, in the interest of science, I tried it and will now acknowledge that my previous position may have been foolish. I have, in fact, wasted 20 years since I discovered toasted tuna by not actually adding melted cheese to it. Thanks to a small hiccup in editorial organisation, there's no random 19 or Dorset Island discs in this issue. Sorry, I know, they're popular. Instead, may I suggest you spend some time on the solar farm debate with Rupert Hardy and just have a look at the columns you might normally flick past. I know, I do it too, but trust me, every single page in our magazine earned its place and it's well worth some minutes of your time. Jane's wildlife column deserves to be read slowly. Charlotte, flowers, always makes me laugh. Andrew, farming, always makes me think. Roger Guttridge always has a good story. And if you get a chance to look at the magazine, Tracy and Courtney manage to combine words and pictures perfectly every month in a country living. The reader's photos are also an absolute joy, so please, if you get two seconds, do just go and at least have a look at the photography. I know that everywhere we look right now, there seems worry, despair, gloom, uncertainty, and a bill that needs paying. Except here in the BV, of course. We always try to leave you feeling a little bit lighter and perhaps knowing something new. And we're free, obviously. Meanwhile, we shared a small note on social media which has been really popular and I think it bears repeating. It's January. Rest. Get some fresh air. Find a new favourite show. Eat chocolate. Keep cosy. Cook your favourite foods. Get yourself a big bunch of flowers and plan some adventures. See you in three weeks. Letters to the editor. First of all, Susan Holmes wrote in by email to ask, Why do people in Blandford have to drive fast? Taking a few things to my car on Christmas morning, a car was coming towards me at speed. When I said to the woman who was driving, slow down, I got F off back. Charming. And on Christmas morning, there just is no need for either. I thought it appropriate to contact your magazine in the hope that a warning note could be posted. I have just returned from walking along the North Dorset Trailway towards Shillingstone Station with my five-year-old Cocker Spaniel. From a side footpath, a youngish boxer dog appeared, stopping some 20 feet from us. A few moments later, a pack of five or six dogs, including two aggressive older boxers, chased out of the same path and went for me initially, barking and salivating, but then attacked my spaniel. The dogs were acting as a pack. 
The two women who were with the dogs subsequently appeared and, while trying to intervene, had no impact on stopping the attack. Getting my dog out from under the two larger boxers, we managed to walk away. We will live to fight another day, but the spaniel is a bit shaken up. I did tell the women concerned that the dogs were acting as a pack and should either be muzzled or at least on leads. This was met with a somewhat vacant look. I am flagging this up not to cause trouble, but to alert others. If this were a young child or a family out with their dog or puppy, the outcome could be very unpleasant. I understand these women are local, so a repeat of this matter is highly likely. And that's a correspondent whose name and address has been supplied. Robert Mackenzie of Blandford writes, Do fellow North Dorset residents feel that they receive value for their council tax? It recently came to my attention that we have the third highest council tax rates in England. But do we get the third best services? I'm failing to see where all the money goes. I would welcome someone pointing me to the information. Council tax is for our streets, lighting, rubbish, planning, policing, etc., But our streets are constantly being washed into potholes or, as in Sturmster Newton's case, falling into the river. There's very little street lighting, except in the towns, and there's even less police, through no fault of their own. But we know the government have no wish to lose votes by raising the taxes required to foot the rising social care bill, so they pass it down the line to local councils. And I presume, as Dorset has an ageing population, Our social care bill is higher than most. At least, the plentiful new housing developments springing up around the north of the county will be filling up the council tax coffers nicely. Have spending budgets increased accordingly? This is from Betty Jeans of Shaftesbury. I very much enjoy Andrew Livingston's articles, and his recent one from December was no exception. I had yet to see a lack of eggs in the shops, although I had seen much talk of empty shelves, and I felt perhaps it was another media frenzy over a non-existent issue. Apologies, BV. Until I looked a little more closely and realised that the eggs in my trolley were from Italy, just as Andrew Livingston had predicted. Further reading has led me to the understanding that it's not just chicken farmers who are unable to reinvest in the next cycle of egg-laying hens. It's happening across a number of food industries where the producers are seeing profits squeezed, not only by rising costs, but also by increasing supermarket pressures. At what point can and should the government intervene? I refuse to accept we need a nanny state interfering. Enterprise should naturally be self-regulating. But what is an industry to do when the playing field is very far from level? How can our producers, held quite rightly to the very highest of welfare traceability and chemical standards, possibly compete with cheap imports from less regulated countries? Surely if those are the standards we hold ourselves to, any product sold here should maintain the same standards. Not doing so rather makes a mockery of the system, and enforces the fact that only the wealthy can afford to eat well. If everyone had the same standards, the prices would be the same for all. And a note from the editor, you may find George Hosford's article in Farming this month even more illuminating, Betty. Pam Ferguson wrote in by email to say, I was so surprised when I had a call just before Christmas telling me that I had won the Boxing Day racing prize. On Boxing Day, we joined the queue of cars winding slowly through Wincanton to the race course. The going was good to soft, and that was just the car park. Thankfully, there was a tractor on site to pull out anyone who got stuck. 
We had a great day chatting to other racegoers, cheering on the finishers. The noise in the stands when the horses are coming into the finish is incredible. Thank you for organising the prize. It was a great day out and one we will repeat. This from Graham Gale of Milton Abbas. There was a recent cheque presentation to the Milton Abbas surgery. £2,000 was raised primarily by monthly charity pub quizzes held at the Crown in Winterbourne Stickland throughout 2022, with the remainder being raised by a local resident who match-funded some quizzes, local donations and the profits from local arts reach shows. The main aim of the fundraising was to allow Milton Abbas surgery to buy a second online heart monitor, which transfers results directly to the patient's records, reducing administration work by the practice staff. This equipment is very rare in Dorset, so Milton Abbas are leading the field in detecting and recording heart issues. The housing market. Prices may be falling and mortgage lenders nervous, but house hunters are still looking to move. Local experts take a look at the Dorset housing market in 2023. Mortgage rates have risen to levels that were unimaginable just 12 months ago. A cost of living crisis rages on, and there's a widespread belief that house prices will continue to fall. It's worth pointing out that mortgage rates have been falling since they peaked in October, though staying much higher than for many years. The top five-year fixes come in just under 4.5% now, compared with 2.5% a year ago. Sellers may have to accept that buyers simply cannot afford to pay 2022 prices for their home in 2023. But the flip side of that is that their own new home should be cheaper too. Spring is traditionally the best time to sell your house. But if that's going to be you in 2023, then right now is the time to start thinking about it. If you're a seller, then perhaps start considering getting your house on the market to get ahead of the spring competition. But it's a big decision, and with the economy in turmoil, is now a good time. Is the market even moving at the moment? Or is it still moving too fast? Fear not. We've rounded up some of the most experienced local experts to help with their top insider tips on how to sell or buy a house with as little stress as possible this year. The first question. Tell us about the property market over the last year. Are house prices falling in Dorset? Is availability increasing? Is there still a national move to the country? No one could have predicted the exceptional demand for property over the last few years, nor that it would continue long after the last lockdown, says James McKillop, head of residential sales at Savills in Salisbury. However, it was inevitable that the associated price growth would need to return to a less frenetic pace in the long term, and we are starting to see that. The legacy of the pandemic is buyers driven by lifestyle choices. It now seems to be ingrained in the UK buyer's psyche. In a recent Savile survey of 1,500 prospective buyers and sellers of prime property, when asked what type of location is most attractive, the majority opted for small towns, villages and countryside over cities and their suburbs. Sarah Cull, Senior Associate Director at Strutt & Parker, Salisbury, added, The property market has certainly been eventful over the past year. For the first quarter, there was very little in stock. This eased, and we had another busy and successful summer. The mini-budget brought about uncertainty and a rise in interest rates, which encouraged buyers with good mortgage offers to press on to conclude their purchases and lock in the rate. The end of the year was quieter as per usual. 
The market in the first half of 2022 was the strongest we have ever seen, said Harry Jose, branch manager of Roderick Thomas Castle Kerry, agreeing with Sarah and James. Asking prices were at their highest and we were still achieving 2 or 3% above those prices on average. Since then, we have of course seen a slowdown, exacerbated by the autumn mini-budget. Properties are now sticking around for longer, meaning a larger number of properties appear to be on the market at any given time. I'd say that agents on average have around twice as many properties available as they did this time last year. This isn't because more properties are coming onto the market, it's because fewer are selling. Due to that slowdown, I'm seeing many prices reduce which of course contributes to an overall fall in house prices. However, buyers are still moving and good properties are still selling at strong prices. We've been fortunate enough to sell some lovely houses, many to cash buyers who haven't been impacted to the same extent by increasing interest rates. Others, especially the first and second time purchasers, are being impacted by apprehensive mortgage valuers even when strong prices are offered by still confident buyers. What do you see 2023 bringing in terms of the property market? Harry Jose feels we may finally be on the other side of the COVID effect. I strongly feel, he says, that we are really just seeing a return to the traditional cyclical nature of the property market, which was normal pre-COVID. The spring booms and then the market tails off again in the winter. Sarah Cull agrees. We feel, she says, that 2023 will bring about a more traditional market, where properties take slightly longer to sell, but still change hands. It's widely expected that interest rates will settle in the later spring, and the good weather always brings buyers back to the market. James McKillop commented on the longer financial view of the market. Saville's researchers anticipate slight downward pressure on values in 2023, but less pronounced than in the mainstream markets. There is still strong demand for the right property, the area remains hugely popular, and while 2023 activity won't be as high or as frenzied as it has been, we are still seeing the effect of a significant stock shortage. Good homes in good locations will always see strong demand, and if priced correctly, will sell well. Taking a longer view, Savile's researchers are forecasting a return to positive growth as early as 2024, with prices over the next five years seeing increases of up to 11.6%. The third question. A presentable but busy family home gets two hours' notice of a viewing. What should they do? Harry continued, As I said, the house doesn't have to be perfect all the time. House viewers really aren't expecting daffodils on the windowsill and freshly baked bread in the oven. I'd recommend making all the beds, giving the house a quick vacuum and washing up any dishes. Also, another tip from personal experience, make sure you stay out of the bathroom just before. Sarah had similar advice. Air the house, light the fire, if it's cold out, get some flowers on the table, clear the surfaces, make the beds, put the loose seats down and run the vacuum around. Also, if you have dogs, do take them out for a walk during the viewing. We all love our pets, but not everyone sees them as man's best friend. James also said that first impressions count and that clutter is never good. We would always try and give more than 24 hours notice, but it can be difficult in a challenging market, as you don't want to lose any opportunities to show a good potential buyer around. The key thing is first impressions, so declutter, put all the lights on and open the windows. A fresh, light-filled house will always do the trick. 
Buyers are very understanding about family homes, especially if it's a last-minute request. Most just appreciate the opportunity to view. Are there any real-life do-not-do-this bloopers you can share? Sarah recalled one client who carried out their own viewing, and they referred to the village as the village of feuds and floods. She said, the viewer did not buy, and we took over the viewings. Harry has seen some things too. We have certainly had some worse than others, but hygiene and cleanliness are vital in all walks of life, and house selling is no different. From minor things like not washing up before a viewing, to real eye-openers like dog mess in the house, we have seen it all. It doesn't have to be a show home, but please do make it feel welcoming. Question 5. When you can see a glaring issue which you know may put buyers off, do you tell the vendor? Sarah was comfortable with being truthful. I will always mention it gently and constructively and come up with solutions, hopefully without causing offence. Often it's as simple as a bookshelf narrowing a hallway or a sofa that could do with moving a few degrees. James is also keen to work any issues through. If I see something I know is going to be a problem, I will always try and discuss it with the owners and see what options are available. If there are remedial works required, I often think it's better to get them done. But if they are subjective, i.e. a bathroom needs updating, I would say to leave it, as many buyers like the chance to put their own mark on a house and will often change a kitchen or bathroom to suit their style. Harry pointed out that this is part of an estate agent's job. It's an important but difficult conversation to have, and one which requires some diplomacy. I always go ahead and inform the sellers, but open the conversation by asking them if they would like some advice on how best to present the house. The answer will always be yes, and thus you have the platform to go ahead and advise. After all, a seller is using an agent for their professional experience and advice. What unexpected features make a house easier to sell? James didn't hesitate. He says, with the cost of living affecting everyone, energy-efficient homes are starting to attract premium prices. It doesn't matter what age of house you have. If the heating system is modern and efficient, ideally with some form of renewable energy, buyers will see a significant upside. It is also the hassle factor of upgrading an older system that many buyers don't want to face. Harry said, Houses with a light and airy feel are always easy, but also those that flow well. When a house has simple-to-access rooms and a layout that makes sense, it often just clicks instantly with the buyers. Sarah suggested it was simple attraction. I always feel, she says, that the basic charm of a house is underestimated. I visited a wonderful house last week, oozing with period features, and it had a lovely atmosphere. I'm sure that when this comes on the market, buyers will be enchanted by it. The seventh question. Do you have any tips for those who are finding the market difficult? Harry suggested staying in touch was the top priority. As much as I'd like for buyers to only be registered with me, I'd recommend that they cast their net to all corners of their search area. It's also important to stay in touch with the estate agents in the same way you expect them to stay in touch with you. You'll increase the chances of an agent calling you directly before a property hits the shelves. James said buyers must keep the bigger picture in mind. Even with a slight nervousness in the market, the best houses will likely have more than one potential buyer. You have to be front of the queue, and that means having your mortgage in place and or being chain free. Otherwise, you'll simply have to offer more to be competitive. Sarah had some advice for sellers. I'd say, work with your agent. 
Do you need new photographs or a rearrangement of the images online? Is the price right? Can any additional press exposure be secured? Is there anything that can be done to enhance the first impressions? All of these are sensible questions. Are there any specifically desirable locations within the area? James said, Shaftesbury. It's always been a popular spot, and any of the villages surrounding it are consistently sought after, particularly those with amenities such as a village shop. Places like Manston and Star Provost are also popular. The Chalk Valley is perennially popular, Sarah added, as is Tisbury and its surrounding villages. People have always been drawn here for the excellent countryside and coast, the access to London and the West Country, not to mention fantastic schools. Politics. Simon Hoare writes as follows. As Gloucester put it in Richard III, it does feel rather that now is the winter of our discontent. The spectre and presence of strikes have once again reared their heads and are having profound negative effects on many people across the country. The term winter of discontent was first used in a UK political context to describe the strike-laden days of 1978-79. I don't believe that those of 2022-23 are anything like as momentous or weather-making from a political perspective. Anyone with a modicum of knowledge of Dorset's history will know the story of the Tollpuddle Martyrs. The role that the trade unions play, representing their members, championing workplace safety and rights, is a vital and important one. Prior to their creation, the life of the working man and woman was precarious, subject to the whims of the employer. Huge and beneficial strides have been made from which all of us in work, whether we are members of a trade union or not, benefit. Statutory sick pay, paid holiday and the like all came about directly through the lobbying of trade unions. However, it's the right to withdraw labour below a certain public service level that's the sticky issue. Our police, military and prison officers are unable to strike because to do so would, among other things, jeopardise public safety. Should we now be thinking about a similar caveat for other vital public services, for example in the health and transport sectors? I don't have a doctrinal view on this, but rather I'm committed to the public service and people being able to go about their daily business, be educated, commute or receive health care irrespective of whether there's an employee-employer dispute going on. One of the concerns of many strikers is pay. Inflation, as we know, is higher than for very many years, although it appears to have peaked and is now falling. Interest rates are moving upwards, although still historically low, as a way of addressing those upward inflationary pressures. We often talk of inflation without really thinking about its effect. I was asked about this on a recent school visit and provided the following analogy. You have a chocolate bar at playtime. You expect to eat it all and to enjoy it, but along comes the inflation monster who swallows a great chunk of it you lose out. You may then buy a larger chocolate bar, but the monster only comes back to take a slightly bigger chunk. No matter what you do, the monster always wins. The monster always comes back, he never really goes away. You only have a chance of enjoying your chocolate bar if we starve and defeat the monster. We need to starve and cage rather than feed the inflation monster. Inflation-busting pay increases do not bust inflation, they feed it, adding fuel and stoking the rates higher. Anyone in current public life knows this is not an easy message to communicate or accept. It is the political economy version of tough love. Unless we beat inflation, everything else will be in vain. So that is currently the central, all-focusing task of the government. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Throughout this year, I will continue my regular advice surgeries to provide help and support to those who need it. 
please email simon.hoare.mp at parliament.uk to make an appointment. May I close this first column of the year by wishing everyone across North Dorset a belated but sincere, happy, peaceful and safe 2023. And from Mike Chapman of the Lib Dems, The new year provides the opportunity to reflect on the past 12 months and also to look ahead. My personal highlights of 2022 include knocking on doors in the villages around Wem in North Shropshire during our by-election effort. The experience told me that there's always much to play for, whatever the apparent odds. I found a great similarity with the Blackmore Vale. There were strong echoes at the Gillingham and Shaftesbury show in August, a rural community that wants to have the wherewithal to get on and create its own better future and to lose the constraints of a centralising bureaucracy and top-down diktat. The low points of the year were the events that gave us three PMs within a month and a half, ending up with someone with no mandate whatsoever outside the House of Commons. Yes, there is now a sensible, if managerialist, pair at the helm. The besetting sins of managerialism are that you believe you have a right to be in charge, have a right to say what gives, and have a tendency to disregard the views of workforce and shareholders alike. Does the cap fit? Is this sustainable? Is it even democratic? The questions of our age. We are likely to see a continuing focus on inflation, which has now probably peaked, Success will be claimed, even though prices will remain at their new, higher levels. The underlying reality is that heating our homes has become a luxury. Buying a home has become even more of a stretch for the young. Travelling to work chews up a greater proportion of our income than ever. And a decent diet is beyond the less advantaged. Who would have thought it after 12 years of a Conservative government? We also have broken systems in health, social care, the railways and the Royal Mail. The issues are not just about pay, they are about long-term viability, about the motivation, energy and productivity of the people involved. Add in the fragmentation of the Union as a result of Brexit and you get a very sorry overall picture of incompetence and failed dogma. Looking ahead though, a different kind of government is available. You see it everywhere the Liberal Democrats are at work, an approach based on listening, understanding and caring, on building for the future, harnessing creativity and creating opportunity and fairness for everyone. Both Tory and Labour depend on narrow views and the dividing lines between have and have not, city and countryside, north and south. Inevitably, the solutions from either side are demonstrably and palpably polarised. In the face of global warming, we have Putin, Xi, an inward-looking USA, and an arm's-length EU. It won't do. Our best chance is to come together and develop a broad, unifying, and more effective way ahead for the good of everyone. Broadly based and unifying. Unifying above all. This from Ken Huggins of the Green Party. Generally, I consider myself towards the glass-half-full end of the spectrum, but I must admit the events of last year had me beginning to doubt my sanity in seeing any reason for optimism. However, there are some encouraging signs for hope, perhaps even, dare I say, the metaphorical green shoots of spring. 
One is a positive shift in some of the right-leaning media, away from simple outraged condemnation of environmental process and towards an acceptance that the climate and environmental crisis is real and must be addressed urgently. In a recent Times column, for example, the writer admits to having fumed at environmental protesters blocking roads and throwing food at artworks, but reflects that he now realises that they are entirely right to be concerned and that their cause is actually everybody's cause. He highlights the gulf between what almost every government agrees needs to happen and what they are actually doing, our own government included. Another positive note has been HSBC saying it will stop funding new oil and gas fields and that it will expect more information from energy clients about their plans to cut carbon emissions. Hopefully it will not just be another example of corporate greenwashing. Something that gives me particular cause for hope is the fact that although we humans can be thoughtless, selfish, greedy and sometimes downright barbaric, we also have a huge capacity for caring and compassion. Where I live, in Hazelbury Bryan, the community response during the Covid pandemic focused on the Red Barn Village store, with the proprietors, Tara and Darren, packed up regular supplies of food and other items for a team of willing volunteers to deliver to residents who were unable to collect for themselves. The new year will be what we collectively make of it. We all have a part to play. Let's look out for those in need, some of whom may face greater challenges than we do but find it difficult to ask for help. And let's stay focused on our capacity to care, both for our fellow humans and the natural world we all share and depend on. And from Pat Osborne of Labour. It doesn't seem that long ago that Rishi Sunak and co stood on their doorsteps every Thursday night, along with the rest of us, applauding NHS workers for keeping us all safe during the pandemic. But following the largest strike in the history of the NHS in December, with the promise of more to come, the Prime Minister and his cronies are showing their true colours by snubbing and scapegoating the same hard-working people they once cynically lauded as heroes for their own political advantage. Key workers from the NHS, Royal Mail and the Railways are not just fighting for a pay packet that will put food on the table and pay rising energy bills, they're also fighting to protect the services they provide and the safety of the people who rely on them. In the case of NHS workers, it's the NHS itself that they're fighting for. The response from the Tories has not been to enter into dialogue with workers and acknowledge their legitimate concerns about the rising cost of living and degradation of services. Instead, It has been to try to blame them for an NHS crisis born of 12 years of ideological spending cuts and their total loss of control over a broken UK economy plagued by inflation. With the cost of energy bills, the weekly shop, filling up your car, rents and mortgages all going up, the only thing that isn't is wages. Already squeezed people are being put under ever more pressure. Meanwhile, Big Energy predicts $170 billion in excess profits over the next couple of years, with a further $33 billion predicted for city bankers. It doesn't take Carol Vorderman to work out that it is fat cat profits and not nurses' pay that is at the root of our current inflationary woes. Well, that's all for episode one of the January 2023 BV Magazine podcast. Join us again for episode two. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.